And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashem, Hashbadanah, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people as he opened it. All the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shephatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabad, Haman, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during their feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let's pray. Father, we confess this morning that your word is truth, that it is in the truth of your word that we have light, that we have understanding, that we know you, and we're dependent upon your spirit for that true knowledge. And so we ask, God, that you would renew us yet again this morning, and that you would speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. The name George Mallory probably means very little to you, but it is believed that he was actually the first climber ever to ascend Mount Everest some 29 years prior to Sir Edmund Hillary in 1953. The story goes that on June 6, 1924, he set out from his last camp to make his final assault on the peak of Everest, but he never returned. But there were several pieces of evidence recovered across the years, even as late as 10 years ago, that actually seemed to point to the fact that George Mallory made it, and that then he died on the descent. And surprisingly, this is the common situation on Mount Everest, that the climb is actually not where people are claimed into death. It's actually not the ascent that is so troublesome and perilous. It's actually the descent, the backside of the journey, the second half, you could say. The descent is more arduous than the climb. And this is the critical observation for every church that's in a renewal and revitalization process, that we cannot relax after our initial successes that the backside is sometimes more perilous than the initial climb. And we see this in the book of Nehemiah because across these first six chapters, we see an impressive accomplishment. 52 days, Nehemiah gives himself to organizing the work of rebuilding the wall. He overcomes opposition. He unites a really ragtag group of people in a common effort, and they rebuild the wall that was broken down around the city of Jerusalem. But Nehemiah doesn't content himself with a strong start. Last week in chapter 7, we saw that there's a pivot that takes place. That the focus of the book now turns to the reformation and revival of the people of God, not simply the structures that surrounded Jerusalem. That Ezra and Nehemiah now turn to speak to the spiritual reformation of the church. And in chapter 8, this is precisely what we find, that spiritual reformation moving ahead. And what is so helpful for us is to pay careful attention to that reformation and what the building blocks were, how God was actually working out that reformation and renewal and revival. Because you see, reformation and renewal is not something that we simply get to make up. It's not something that we decide arbitrarily as to how it's going to happen. And we see here in Nehemiah 8, the building blocks, and there's three things that we'll give our attention to this morning. The first we find in these first 12 verses is that we see that there is a devotion to the Word of God. It begins with this priest named Ezra who brings out the book of the law. He brings it to this certain courtyard, and a platform was constructed. 
This was a stage, or what we call a chancel today, with a pulpit in which the law of God was to be read and proclaimed and preached. We then have a summary of what happened, if you follow, in verse 8. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. The scriptures were read publicly, and then they were explained clearly. And friends, this is the simple task of preaching. The book was read. The book was explained. It was put in front of the people. There were a group of men who were then assisting Ezra and the priest who read, helping the people understand more plainly and working the truth down into the soil of their lives. This is the simple work of Christian ministry. It was then and there. It is here and now to bring forth the things of God and put them in front of the people of God. And some do fear that this pattern of ministry will simply become irrelevant. But the important thing for us to remember as we look at the work of the Reformation and renewal of the church is that what is relevant is not defined by what we think is going to work. That it's actually the command of God that determines what is relevant for the church. And that the church is at its best when it listens to that command and receives it and gladly and joyfully engages with it. And the command that we have is to read and to preach, to explain and to work it out. That's the side of Christian ministry. That's what's to be provided to the church. But in these first 12 verses, we also see that as the ministers take up their role with the Word of God, that there's three things going on in the congregation. If you follow with me in verse 3 in the second half of that, we see what's happening here. And the first thing that we find is that the congregation was attentive to this Word. It said, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Now that means that they were assembled and ready for it. There was some preparation. They were eager to hear what was said. They were there from early in the morning until midday. So never complain about 90 minutes. <laughs> Mid early morning to midday. They were attentive to the word of God. Ready to receive. The second thing we see in verse 5 is that they reverently receive the word. There are two liturgical things that happen that were part of the tradition and the culture of their day that don't necessarily have to be verbatim repeated today. But when the word was heard, they actually stood for it, just like we stand for someone who enters into a room who we deem to be important like a judge. They stood for the reading of the word, and then after the word was read, the people all said, Amen and Amen. That is just to, be, to say, so be it, so be it. This is true, this is true. And so they liturgically marked that this word was important and was to be received with reverence. And those externalities are important for us. It is why each week we say, this is the word of the Lord, and what do you respond Oh, gosh. This is the word of the Lord? Yes, we liturgically receive it to show reverence and respect for God. Of course, that's not all the reverence and respect that God wants. 
It's not just in some external form because we find there's a final thing that the congregation does. Not only were they attentive and prepared for it, and then with reverence receiving it, but then they were responsive to this word. If you follow in verses 9 through 12, you see that there were two responses. We'll look at those in more detail in just a second. But they responded by weeping and then rejoicing. They were engaged. They heard this word and understood it after it was clearly taught. After the plain things of it had been put in front of them. They'd gotten it since. And they wept and also they rejoiced. But they were engaged. They were answering what they had heard from God. And this is what devotion to the word of God looks like. It involves the Christian ministry, putting before the people of God the diet that God commands. And it involves the people, the church, taking that diet that's offered, knowing how to be attentive to it, knowing how to reverently relate to it, knowing how to respond to it, to bring it into their lives and to assimilate its truth, to be part of who they are. This is devotion to the word of God. The second thing that we find in verses 9 through 12 specifically is we see the dynamic activity of God through his word. As we gather to hear the law of God, as we hear his word, there is this dynamic at work among us that we must note, that we have to pay careful attention to because this dynamic is always and everywhere present when God's word is heard rightly. You see this dynamic first explained in verse 9, the last part of that verse, when the people had heard the word of God, is explained to us, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. This is simply to say that there was conviction. They knew that their lives were out of accord with what they had just heard. We'll learn just later in the passage that they hadn't kept the feast of booze in many, many, many years. They knew that their lives were upside down, that they were out of accord, that there were many things in which they had failed, in many things they had fallen short. There was real conviction and there was real concern. And it broke the people apart. They didn't like where they were. They weren't satisfied with where they were in their sanctification. There was this sense of failure and frustration, conviction and concern. And when we engage with the living God and his word is spoken to us, when we hear all that he says, this is always the case. It's always the case for us in which our sins and our shortcomings are revealed. And this is the first dynamic that we find. But importantly, it's not the only dynamic. Because we also find that with that word of conviction, there is also a word of comfort that is spoken. Follow with me in verse 10. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words 
that had been declared to them. And this is what is critical for us. That the dynamic that's involved as we hear the word of God is twofold. That there is a word of conviction that brings us to an account of our sins. But yet there is a deeper word of comfort that goes beyond all of our sins and all of our failures. That leads us to rejoicing. It's what is called here the joy of the Lord. Because yes, we have a precept, a command from God. But then we have an even greater promise from God. And that is that He is our God and He forgives our sins. He blots them out. He passes out forgiveness. He removes all of our treachery, all of our rebellion, all of our wrongdoing. Precept and promise are both confirmed here. And this is the dynamic that is at play. And it is the grace of God in the promise of God that is ours in Jesus that leads us to then join with these saints who were rejoicing on that day. They were told to stop mourning. They had gotten the fact that they had done wrong. And then the fact and the objective truth that their sins had been remitted, that they had been removed, that God had done something on their behalf, that God has done something on your behalf in Jesus. And so turn from your mourning. Let that mourning turn to rejoicing. And it's pretty critical for us to understand those two movements, conviction and comfort. Without conviction, the church is only into the work of affirmation to tell you that you're okay. But without comfort, we're simply descending into a pagan form of religion, graceless and proud forms of Christianity that aren't pleasing to God. Certainly, he has nothing to do with them. That the work of the gospel is always to convict and it is always to comfort. This is the way that God works in our world. And so we have to observe this dynamic. The final piece of this reformation and revival that we find at play here works in verses 13 through 18. And we see that one of these building blocks is that we find the cultivation of the worship of God. We've considered the role of the Word of God and the dynamic activity of that Word as it works among us. But now we see that that directs us into this cultivating of the worship of God. Oftentimes when we think of revival and renewal in the church, we think of it happening outside of the church. But in the vision, in the vision of the Reformers, this was the furthest thing from the case. John Calvin quips as he begins book four of his institutes that anyone who knows God as father will know the church as mother. That you can't belong to one and not belong to the other was his point. And that the reformation and renewal of the church involves many things, but it always involves the church paying close attention to its institutions and establishments and the means that God promises to work through. And here in Nehemiah 8, we see precisely that. Because after the people gather to hear the word, one of the first things they do is reinstitute the festivals of the Old Testament law. Now, these festivals do not apply to us in a direct way today. This particular festival on the seventh month was known as the Feast of Booths. It was a yearly and annual remembrance of the Exodus in which the people were brought up out of Egypt 
and then lived in temporary shelters for so many years. And so what the people of Israel were to do every year was go camping. Okay? They were to go bring together sticks and branches and to set up a tent to remember what it was like for the people of God as they were brought out of Egypt and to know that that work was done on their behalf as well. And the same God who ministered to those people and spoke His grace to them was their God today. That was the way it was to work. It's important for us to see what was happening, though, in their worship as they gave themselves and cultivated or recultivated those practices because the people were being exercised in two directions. And the same is true for us today when we gather in worship, that we're being exercised in these same directions. And the first is that there was remembrance. As they gathered and celebrated this Feast of Booths over these seven days, the law was read each day, it was proclaimed, and then they returned to their tents. Now these tents were in the courtyards of the city of Jerusalem. Sometimes they were on the roof of your own house. You just weren't allowed to go to your proper bed. And so they were simply to observe this to remember. They were being pointed back to this event that God had accomplished for Israel, to remember all that he had done. And friends, it's critical for us in the Christian life to have this past tense, to be able to look back at what God has done in the event of Jesus Christ, that in his entrance into the world, that in his sinless life, in his working of those miracles, in his teachings, all of this leads to the climatic moment of his death on our behalf and then his resurrection from the dead. And that now through faith in him, we are joined to him and we're counted right with God. Not on account of anything that we've done, not on account of our performance, but account of Jesus. That God makes us right with him. And in worship, we will always be exercising that remembrance of what God has done. And this was what's taking place in Nehemiah 8 for the people of God. But it's not only that they were being exercised in remembrance in the past. There's also something else taking place here. Because this is the second piece. And the way that we're exercised is we're also taught to anticipate. You'll notice that this feast ran for seven days. And then there was a final eight-day solemn assembly is how the passage closes for us. And in ancient Israel, the number seven and the number eight were, of course, very important. Seven marked the completion. It was the days in which creation was formed and brought into existence. But then the eighth day of these festivals was particularly important to the Jewish people because it pointed to something new. It was considered the first day of new creation. And when Israel gathered on the eighth day, it wasn't on their proper Sabbath day, but rather the eighth day was anticipating the great day when God would restore and renew all things and bring about the healing of the nations. That all the promises that he had made to Abraham to bless Abraham and his family, that Abraham's family would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. That great day was what was anticipated on the eighth day. And friends, when we gather for worship, we do so on the other side of Jesus. 
But yet, we are still anticipating something as well, aren't we? Do you have everything today that you think God promises you? No, we don't. We anticipate. We look forward to the healing of all things. We look forward to the peace of God reigning over all the ends of the earth. We look forward to the destruction of our sins and our sinful capacities. We look forward to healed bodies where there's no sin and there's no sickness. There's no more cancer. We look forward to all those things being eradicated from God's good creation that has been spoiled by the pollution of sin. That's the anticipation. And Christian worship will always take us back to the event of how God has accomplished that in Jesus. And it takes us to the future as to everything God will do for us in Jesus. And it is between those two things that God sustains us. He sustains us on the memory of the past, and He sustains us on pulling forward to a vision of the future. And this is what He does for a church in its reformation and renewal. All centered on the Word of God. Clearly spoken, plainly proclaimed, the dynamics of God at work among us, convicting us, and yet bringing us the great comfort of the cross of Jesus. To know that our sins have been condemned in him and have no final word and power over us. And it draws us into great rejoicing, into the worship of God's people. This is the reformation and renewal of the church. Let's lean into that and be those kind of people. Let's pray. Father, we do give thanks that you're committed to your church. We certainly have our failures and our faults, and our strength lies not in ourselves. Our strength lies in the joy that you give us through Jesus. And God, we ask that you will strengthen us that you will fill our hearts with joy, that there will be great rejoicing as we devote ourselves to your word, as we give ourselves to the dynamics that that word brings about, as it reveals our sins and yet provides an even deeper comfort. And Lord, we ask that we would be a people who rejoice in worship, remembering all that you have done and anticipating all that you will do. For God, one day we will join with all the nations and announce that great are the things that he has done. Great things he has done as we look at the healing of all things. And so fill us with hope. Grant us grace to endure in the present. We pray in Jesus' name.